Okay, I think everyone is here, so let's um, go ahead and get started. Obviously, a lot to talk about with such a big uh, topic here. So I realize that um, I'm going to get through a fraction of, of what I'd like to say. So this is um, obviously an introduction to this topic. But uh, believe it or not, I think we've been talking about the atonement all along. So hopefully uh, we'll clarify something. So let's pray as we begin. Father, as we consider just now, um, boy, such an important topic, uh, your death. Please give us insight, wisdom, help us to see things more clearly than we have, help us to come closer to you, and uh, just help us to quiet our minds during this time and to um, forget our other troubles and worries and to come close to you. In your name we pray, amen. Well, first of all, I thought, um, hey, we can identify this with this a little bit in medicine because what is the first step when you begin um, seeing patients? It is to make the right diagnosis, right? If you don't make the right diagnosis, then your treatment is, is not going to be very helpful. If the patient has lung cancer and you are treating them for pneumonia, um, wrong diagnosis, wrong treatment. And so I think we need to ask when we consider um, the atonement. And I know some of you here have um, probably thought a lot about this and uh, others haven't thought very much about it at all. And I know when I was a medical student, uh, the atonement, uh, what are you talking about? I mean, it wasn't that big of an issue. But this is a, a, a very important issue. And so we need to ask, I think, as a first question, what's the problem? Uh, what is it that needs to be fixed? And I think kind of the knee-jerk response that most of us would have is, well, sin, of course. Well, what is sin? And so we, we see that it is important that we understand uh, what is sin? What is the sin problem? How do you fix the sin problem? And so the, the text that would probably be quoted by most is 1 John 3, 4, definition of sin. Sin is a breaking of the law. Now, this is a translation that I like, the Good News Bible, uh, but I think it's not a great translation of this verse. And uh, the word here for the breaking of the law is anomia. And nomia is law. Anomia is literally lawlessness. And so that's why if you look at, at many translations here, sin is lawlessness. Literally, sin is rebelliousness. And um, I think this adds uh, a depth of meaning that, uh, you know, when we think of sin, we tend to think of the outward, obvious manifestations of sin. Murder, stealing, lying, adultery. Uh, that is sin. Uh, but I think ultimately sin is something that resides in the mind. In fact, all those outward actions are not possible unless there is a rebellious, distrustful, disconnected um, state going on in the mind. So the Message Bible says sin is a major disruption of God's order, which is true. And I think uh, Jesus' death reveals very important insights into the nature of the sin problem, which we'll talk about. And uh, not to belabor this, but we've mentioned many times that um, humanity, of course, um, Adam and Eve in the perfection of Eden were not in a rebellious, disconnected, distrustful uh, relationship with God. They were in perfect uh, harmony. And uh, remember what happened at the tree? That what happened when the sin pr problem began within the human race was, you know, this uh, serpent in the tree implied, you know, you're really not free. You can't eat any fruit in this garden. Hmm. Too bad God hasn't made you free. And then, uh, uh, you know, God has lied to you. Uh, sin doesn't lead to death. Now, does sin lead to death? That's, that's an interesting accusation. 
but recall that uh, eating the fruit was really ingestion of the lie about who God is. And uh, the very deceptive lie from Satan to Adam and Eve um, about God's character ultimately is what led them to fear and distrust God. And a few verses later, they're hiding in the bushes uh, from a God who thousands of years later would enter the womb. That was not their picture of God at that time. So here's another verse I like as we try to uh, add to our definition of sin. Romans 14.23, anything that is not based on faith is sin. Now there's one Greek word for faith, trust, believe, Faith, really, I mean, think of trust. Anything that is not based on trust, a connection with God, is sin. Sin is a distrustful attitude towards God, a disconnected, rebellious, distrustful relationship between us and God. And as we just considered the Testament, I mean, what does God trumpet about all of the people, the righteous people in the Old Testament? Uh, it would seem that they trusted God and they were in relationship with God. So Enoch spent his life in fellowship with God, in fellowship. And then he disappeared because God took him away. Abraham, Abram, put his trust in God. There it is. God said, hey, I've got one. He trusts me. And because of this, the Lord was pleased with him and accepted him. Now, I believe that the death of Jesus was absolutely necessary uh, but it is interesting to consider here that uh, long before the cross, God here declared someone acceptable because Abraham put his trust in God. Moses, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man would speak with a friend. Um, God's friends in the Old Testament, uh, the people that we talk about all the time, they had this connection, this friendship, trusting friendship with God. And of course, Job God himself declared there as a perfect and upright man. And this was how Job described his relationship with God before his troubles came on. Those were the days when I was prosperous and the friendship of God protected my home. So that is always the ideal, this relationship, this friendship, and that is what was severed when sin entered the human race. I want to just quote these words of Jesus just to point to sin is much more than the outward manifestations that we see of sin. A uh, very uh, sharp version here of the Message Bible, but I imagine the, this was very stinging. He said to the Pharisees, you're hopeless, you religion scholars and Pharisees, frauds. You burnish the surface of your cups and bowls so they sparkle in the sun while the insides are maggoty with your greed and gluttony. Stupid Pharisees, scour the insides and then the gleaming surface will mean something. You're hopeless, you religion scholars and Pharisees. Frauds. You're like manicured grave plots, grass clipped and the flowers bright, but six feet down it's all rotting bones and worm-eaten flesh. And uh, what Jesus is saying here is, hey, you guys have put a lot of effort into suppressing the outward manifestations of sin. Um, you've looked at the law and you don't steal and you don't commit adultery and you don't murder. But remember in Matthew 5 how we went through and said, if you hate someone, um, it's just as bad as murder. If you lust after a woman in your heart. And so what Jesus is pointing to is, hey, the problem is in the mind. If you are in a rebellious state in the mind, um, don't just work on the outside. And remember, those people who work so hard on the outside that kept the list, looked at God and said, you are of the devil. Okay, so keeping the rules, uh, uh, you would think, question of sin, hey, these people were, were pretty righteous uh, individuals, but Jesus saw through the facade. 
So the question here about sin, if sin is really a, a broken relationship, if sin is rebelliousness, if sin is something that occurs in the mind, um, how do you punish that? Is sin something that uh, we could, um, you know, like pebbles here, can you transfer sin? Could we hold sin in our hand? Could we put it on a table and could we hit it with a hammer? Um, well, that is usually how we describe the cross. And um, I think uh, we need to relook at some of our ways of explaining what actually happened at the cross. Certainly, something was revealed about sin, but what was it? I would look at it like this. And I think we underutilize the medical model of understanding the plan of salvation. We, um, in our society, we pretty much it has become a legal model. But boy, the medical model is, I think, just as much emphasized throughout scripture. So think of it this way. A patient comes in with fever, cough, and um, all the outward manifestations of a pneumonia. Okay, now, if you're going to come along here, how are you going to treat this patient? Well, there are medications that could suppress the cough. There are medications that could bring down the fever. But this is the Pharisee approach, right? Let's treat the symptoms. All right, ultimately, what do we need? We need a treatment. We need antibiotics to fix the underlying problem. All right, I think it's the same way with sin. All right, again, treating the outward manifestations. Um, no, we, we need a remedy that heals the underlying problem. So we need to understand that underlying problem. So the medical model. I read this uh, when we went through John, but at the end of his ministry, Jesus would say, God has blinded their eyes and closed their minds, this poetic description, so that their eyes would not see, their minds would not understand, and they would not turn to me, says God, for me to heal them. I mean, God came in human form to heal, to restore. All right? And I think we, we limit our understanding if we say it, it was just a, a penalty that had to be paid. And I hate to keep picking on Mel Gibson. I just thought it, but it's such a good illustration of um, understanding the problem. When he said God could have pricked his finger and solved the problem, but he wanted to go all the way. And uh, we, we think about the implications of this. Um, a drop of blood, what would that mean? And I think the reason, that, at least for me, the atonement is, is such, one of the reasons it's such an important subject is it so often paints a picture of God. I mean, I think the cross, more than any other event in universal history, is supposed to bring us to trust God, to love him, to see him as our friend. But a certain picture of the cross can view the one on the cross as somewhat less than God, who came to pay a price to the real God, the Father, uh, who needed to be appeased. Um, did the Father need to be persuaded at the cross? Um, did, did God change at the cross? Who changed at the cross? And so again, we think about blood, and I know I mentioned here, but a medical student several years ago who wasn't sure about anything, very skeptical, came up and asked me, are we saved by platelets or neutrophils? And I thought, um, hmm, that's, that's a good thought. But what does it mean to be saved by the blood? Well, as we've said, the blood could have been shed very early on. And so remember that the angel had to come and rescue baby Jesus off to Egypt. So from a model that just needed a drop of blood, that blood could have been shed. I would rather see the blood this way, um, that God became a flesh and blood human being. Saved by the blood, I mean the cross was the climax of the life. Okay, God came in human form to live, to teach, to reveal all sorts of things to us. Uh, but don't just associate the blood with one event. The, the cross was the, the climax 
of the life. And so when Jesus would say, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, again, we think about the blood. This is to internalize the words, the life, everything that Jesus revealed about God to internalize that, like drink, like bread. It assimilates throughout the whole body. So after saying that in symbolic words, he would go on to clarify that those who eat my flesh and drink my blood live in me and I live in them. Okay, we have been disconnected from God. Jesus came, God came in human form to restore us back into relationship again. And uh, I mentioned this a few months ago, but perhaps some of you weren't here. Just the word atonement, which goes way back, hundreds of years, to the time of the King James Bible. And um, the, the meaning of this word has changed from the meaning hundreds of years ago. Uh, the meaning now, and probably most of you hear the word atonement, it is to repair for an offense or injury. Um, you miss your wife's birthday, and boy, you better atone for that in, in some way. Um, or dictionary.com, to make amends. Uh, that is not the meaning of the word atonement if we go back hundreds of years. It is a, comes from Latin, ad, and uh, uh, unum, and literally it is at one, at one meant. So, if we want to talk about atonement models, well, if we use an older definition of the word atonement, it literally is to at one, to bring two things together. And um, Shakespeare would use this word many times. And again, I'm trying to reference this back to that time. And whenever he would use the word atonement, it was reconciliation. And that is a beautiful understanding of the atonement. It is reconciling, bringing us together with God. And uh, again, going back to 1611 here, King James time, it's only used one time in the King James Bible, and that's in Romans 5.11. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. And look this verse up in any modern translation. Uh, here's the New Living Translation, which translates it this way. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God, because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Um, isn't that a wonderful uh, translation that I think clarifies why that's what the atonement is all about? But Jesus died. What's the meaning of the cross? I, I quoted a verse last time suggesting the meaning is important. And here's another one in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the message about Christ's death, okay, what is the message? Is nonsense to those who are being lost, but for us who are being saved, it is God's power. Okay, there is a message, very important message. What is it? Well, um, I think a number of things come into clear focus, the clearest focus uh, on the cross. I think what is revealed is something very important about God and his kingdom. I think uh, this is the clearest revelation about sin. It's the clearest revelation about Satan. It's the clearest revelation about um, humanity and our fallen state. I think everything just kind of lines up in perfect harmony here at the cross, and we can see. So I'm going to go through these things that I've mentioned here, and I think the first, and I, I won't spend as much time talking about this because we've emphasized it so much in this Bible study, but that is the revelation of God's character and God's kingdom. Notice who was changed at the cross. Romans 5.10, we were God's enemies. Hey, those Pharisees who would say, we're God's friends, we love God. They would have said that with words, but notice they weren't. They were God's enemies. We were God's enemies, but he made us his friends through the death of his son. 
So we have to say a friendship was established by what happened at the cross. In 2 Corinthians 5, all this was done by God who through Christ changed us. We were the ones who were changed from enemies into his friends and gave us the task of making others his friends also. Our message is that God was making all human beings his friends through the cross. Uh, Nowhere in scripture is it suggested that God changed at the cross, that the Father changed at the cross. We were the ones who needed to be restored back into relationship and friendship with God. And so again, we'll quote it every Bible study, just because I think it's the heart and center. Eternal life is to know God. How do we know God? Through the revelation of God, Jesus Christ, who said, I finished the work you gave me to do. What was it? I made your name known. I revealed your character. Okay, that's the heart and center message of the cross. Okay, and uh, we're going to spend the whole rest of this year basically going through the writings of Paul, which I understand are frequently used to come to a different understanding of the cross. But this verse would suggest to me, hey, Paul agreed with John about ultimately what was important. And Paul would say, I reckon, reckon everything as complete loss for the sake of what is so much more valuable, the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Again, to know, knowledge, intimacy, relationship is always what is implied in that in the Bible. For his sake I've thrown everything away. I consider it all as mere garbage so that I may gain Christ and be completely united with him. Again, it's a relationship restored. That's what it's all about. Okay, so what was revealed at the cross about the character of God? Well, I mean, I think uh, we just consider the reactions of people who were around the cross. I mean, Jesus didn't say a lot. Um, He didn't do a lot of things around the cross. But notice the people that were there. There was an army officer there who saw what happened. Again, what did he know about this person hanging on the cross? But he saw what happened and he praised God saying, certainly he was a good man. And in Mark, you read, he says, this man was really the son of God. What made him come to that conclusion? When the people who had gathered there to watch the spectacle saw what happened, they all went back home beating their breasts in sorrow. And what would cause them to respond to the cross in that way? Um, It is not expected that when you torture someone to death, that as they die, they forgive you. Father, forgive them. I mean, I think the the response of Jesus, we can't help it. If someone comes to us and they're angry and mad, it's our natural instinct to respond in the same way, with anger, right back at them. Okay, and uh, Jesus was not at all like that, of course. He responded to their hatred to the ultimate degree with only love and with words of forgiveness. And uh, that's a shocking thing. And these people went home beating their breasts in sorrow. And the the Roman officer here was uh, apparently uh, very moved by what he saw. And so... Uh, Just uh, briefly, I mean, the things that that were revealed about God at the cross, I mean, first of all, just that who's dying on the cross? Romans or John 1.1, the word became flesh, the word was God. That God in human form came. And that God, the creator, allowed his own creatures to torture him to death. I think it's just the most unthinkable. We we talk about the cross as being, uh, boy, the greatest moment in history. I mean, at the same time, it was the worst, the lowest moment in history because it was the time when God's own creatures put him to death to silence his voice. But what he did at the cross, of course, was um, how did he treat people? I mean, he saw his mother there. 
and he made sure that John took care of his mother. Um, the two thieves on the cross, they're cursing him, and then just like the Roman officer, the one thief, and we, we imagine, if I'm a thief and I'm dying, I'm not that worried about others around me. But this other thief on the cross saw Jesus and was so touched by just the way he dealt with the circumstance that he would uh, have a complete change of heart and would just say, uh, boy, I'd sure like to be in your kingdom. All right? And of course, we know the, the gracious response of Jesus. And then ultimately, just saying to the people who tortured him to death, Father, forgive them. And uh, since the Father is the same in heart, character, motive as the Son, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, uh, the Father didn't say, well, you might, Jesus, but I'm not that forgiving. No, he was exactly the same. All right? So think of the implications there, that people who were not asking forgiveness, people who actually hated God, were forgiven. Um, very significant, I think. So I think the conclusion just about the character of God is the message we have heard from his son and announce is this. God is light and there is no darkness at all in him. So if there are accusations about God that he is severe, vengeful, unforgiving, arbitrary, severe, uh, make up the list. Um, the death of Jesus is the strongest evidence that God is not like that at all. Now, just very closely related. So we said the character of God had to be uh, revealed as it was. I mean, Jesus didn't just live a life and then zip back up to heaven. He went all the way. And I think the other aspect was he wanted to reveal the nature of his kingdom. And the nature of God's kingdom is loving others more than self. And so he would say, my commandment is this, love one another. How do we know what it is to love one another? Well, just as I love you. The greatest love you can have for your friends is to give your life for them. That is the nature of God's kingdom. It is we love and are concerned more with others than with self. And uh, Jesus on the cross, I mean, we see there, just emptied himself entirely. His focus all the way through was love others, love others, love others. That is the way our king runs the universe. And we don't have time, but I'd love to contrast all of the, the texts that would support the way Satan would run his kingdom it's survival of the fittest. It is dog eat dog. It is you climb to the top, you beat and destroy anyone who gets in your way. They're two opposing kingdoms. God's kingdom is not like that. And so the temptation, just like it was the temptation out in the wilderness of temptation. Remember, uh, Satan said, hey, if you're the son of God, prove it. Do this, prove it. Come on, do something. And the temptation in the cross was, Save yourself if you are God's son. Come on down from the cross. And again, it was do something for yourself. Save self, not others. And at every temptation, he resisted that and he gave for others. That's the kingdom of God. Okay, so um, obviously uh, supremely important here, the revelation of God's character and his kingdom. Uh, the second point I would make is the very important revelation of sin. We've discussed sin is the root of the problem. What's revealed about sin at the cross? Well, um, I think it's interesting here that we make some assumptions sometimes at the cross, but in Isaiah 53, we read he was hated and rejected. His life was filled with sorrow and terrible suffering. No one wanted to look at him. We despised him and said, he's a nobody. He suffered and endured great pain for us, but notice, we thought his suffering was punishment from God. We thought that. 
But notice, he was wounded and crushed because of our sins. By taking our punishment, he made us completely well. So what did the punishing at the cross? What was the destructive element? Well, we've thought that he was punished by God, but no, it's because of our sins. Now, uh, how does that work? I know I'm going through a lot of uh, material. We're going to come back and spend a long time on Romans 3.25, but I would understand it this way. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement, of atonement, of reconciliation, through faith in his blood. Okay, again, some uh, symbolic language there, but we are restored to trust. He did this. Now, why did he do this? To demonstrate his righteousness. Okay, a good Latin word there. His character, his goodness. He did demonstrate that at the cross, didn't he? Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Now, what does that mean? He left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And we have to go all the way back before there was sin, at least in the human race. And God warned Adam and Eve, you must not eat the fruit of that tree. If you do, you will die the same, same day. And they lived a thousand years. Um, remember how Jesus would refer to death. I mean, he went around and, uh, you know, Lazarus is dead, the little girl is dead, and Jesus would say, well, they're, they're just asleep. I'll go wake them up. Um, I think this refers to a much more serious death than the first death experience. There is a death that is the result of sin, which causes separation from God, and I think um, God has not allowed that to fully happen on this planet. I mean, don't we use things like the winds are held back, um, has God really allowed us to experience the consequences of sin? When we get to Romans 1, um, I will go through this in a lot more detail, but there's an important concept in dozens of times in the Old Testament where we relate God's anger with his giving up, abandoning, forsaking his people. I'll just mention one example, and when we get to Romans 1, um, I'll point out the other evidence for this. But in Deuteronomy 32... God speaking, my anger will flame up like fire and burn everything on earth. It will reach to the world below and consume the roots of the mountains. I will bring on them endless disasters and use all my arrows against him. An encouraging verse about um, the anger of God here, the shooting all of his arrows and so on. But never stop reading when you come to a verse like this because when God's anger is mentioned in the Old Testament, in dozens of examples, the next verse or within the same verse, we have clarification. What is God's anger? They failed to see why they were defeated. They cannot understand what happened. Why were a thousand defeated by one and ten thousand by only two? Here, the Lord their God had abandoned them. Their mighty God had given them up. So, God's anger, as we'll try to make a better case for later, is ultimately to give up, abandon, forsake, to leave people to the natural consequences of separation from him. Uh, that's how I would understand the experience of God's anger. And uh, Adam and Eve uh, didn't seem that uh, they took God's words very seriously. So again, we'll present all the Old Testament evidence later, but Paul in Romans 1 summarizes the dozens of Old Testament examples of God's anger, God's punishment, as abandoning his children and leaving them to the consequences. So important, Paul brought it up right away. He said, God's anger is revealed from heaven against all the sin and evil of the people whose evil ways prevent the truth from being known. God punishes them because what can be known about God is plain to them for God himself made it plain. And we just read on, again, 
please clarify, Paul. What is God's anger? How does God punish? And if you just read this verse here, as it goes on in Romans chapter 1, Paul three times keeps hammering it. What does God do in his anger? He gives them up or gives them over. He gives them up. He gives them up. And separate from God, that is the experience of God's wrath. And what's interesting here, we just keep reading on a few chapters later, Romans 4.25, talking of Jesus, because of our sins he was given over. Same thing. So what does it mean? In what sense was Jesus given up? And of course, we just consider what happened in Gethsemane. Um, this is a very deep subject, and I uh, don't claim to understand this fully, but something remarkable was happening in Gethsemane to Jesus. Um, we talked about in Bible translations, some of the translators of the Bible who uh, died with such uh, dignity that it seemed like a wedding, composure, a uh, smile on the face as they were burning in the flames. And uh, we can just contrast this with the suffering that the perfect Jesus was going through. In Matthew 26, grief and anguish came over him. And he said to them, the sorrow in my heart is so great that it almost crushes me. In Luke, Father, he said, if you will, take this cup of suffering away from me. Not my will, however, but your will be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Again, why did he need that? Um, in great anguish, he prayed even more fervently. His sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Um, I think to really understand the cross, we need to go back a few hours and contemplate uh, what's happening here in Gethsemane. Uh, if we consider here sin as separating us from God and that having a very devastating consequence, uh, is Jesus experiencing that? And then, of course, he would say, knowing all of that Old Testament evidence about what it means to be given up, that he would say as he was dying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you given me up? Um, I think that uh, we, we sometimes associate the punishment as being dealt out by God for sin, rather than perhaps considering that sin has an intrinsic destructive property. And um, for those of you who are Adventists, I'll, I'll just bring up a quote that uh, is meaningful to me from 1888. We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring the sure result. Every act of transgression reacts upon the sinner, works in him a change of character, and makes it more easy for him to transgress again. By choosing to sin, men separate themselves from God, cut themselves off, that's what sin does, from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. And so God, from before there was sin in the human race, said, hey, don't do that. You will die in the more significant sense of a second death kind of experience. And so when we read a verse like this in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. How about the contrast there? The wage is paid by sin. Sin pays its own wage, death. And so... I think we need to understand, I mean, if you're a physician, would you want your patient thinking, well, the doctor is going to pay the wage? Or would you want your patient to know, hey, the cancer pays its own wage? Um, I think it's important we understand that God is not the one uh, who needs to put his sinful children to death in the second, second death. And we'll talk about the lake of fire, obviously, later on. So the words here, why have you given me up, should bring us back to all of this evidence about the serious consequences of sin. 
I think the sacrificial system was supposed to give that same meaning. I mean, if you're Adam and you just sinned, you hadn't taken God's words very seriously, what do you have to do? Kill an animal. No knives. How do you put an, uh, a sheep? How do you kill a sheep? I mean, he beat it to death with a rock. How did he do it? I mean, he must have said, this is disgusting. And that was the point. Sin is disgusting. It's horrible. It will kill you. And so Paul would talk about the sacrificial system as it is. However, the sacrifices serve year after year to remind people of their sins. And, and should we not see something about sin, the effect of sin, in the experience of Gethsemane and the cross? So again, sin is something ultimately that needs to be healed, not punished. And I think we could incorporate the medical model uh, more than we do and say, hey, sin, it's, it's like a cancer. Uh, it will destroy you. And uh, we should be afraid of sin, not God. Okay, I'll mention this uh, next one here only briefly. The third aspect that I would see is the revelation and the defeat of Satan. Some of you might be familiar with the Christus Victor model of the atonement, uh, which I think really has some uh, wonderful things to say. But um, there's a little bit of evidence for this. In Hebrews 2.4, Jesus himself became like them and shared their human nature. He did this so that through his death he might destroy the devil. Uh, the climax of the great controversy here is at the cross between God and Satan. And Jesus would say, they're leaving the upper room. I mean, this is the end. And he said, I'll not be talking with you much more like this because the chief of this godless world is about to attack. Um, interesting. That's the message translation in uh, the Amplified Bible. I will not talk with you much more for the prince or evil genius ruler of the world is coming and he has no claim on me. Now, again, who's the prince of this world? Do we want to claim Satan as the prince of this world? I think Jesus came to take that title away from Satan. He came to be restored as prince and king of this world. So Jesus warned Peter, Simon, Simon, listen, Satan has received permission to test all of you. And this is, again, Luke 22. This is uh, just as they're going out to Gethsemane. To separate the good from the bad as a farmer separates the wheat from the chaff. And certainly uh, Peter failed the test. Did Satan also tempt Jesus? Uh, is that something that was involved there in Gethsemane? Satan's received permission to test all of you. And I think, I won't read this, but the people that came by wagging their fingers, save self, save self, uh, I think were motivated by Satan, by the principles of his kingdom, to try to just get Jesus, come on, use your power. Um, use your power to save self. Begin to use some of Satan's principles just this once. Do a miracle. Uh, I'm sure all the people would respond if you did a miracle, and he never did it. Okay, he refused to use any of those methods. And so, uh, I love this verse in Colossians 2.15, And on that cross, Christ freed himself from the power of the spiritual rulers and authorities. Who's that? He made a public spectacle of them by leading them as captives in his victory procession. You know, the verse we quoted several times in Revelation that talks about there was war in heaven, battle between Michael and Satan. And uh, the word there is for war is polemos, which is what we get political. This was a political battle, in a sense. Where do you fight a political campaign? I mean, it's fought within the mind. And I think, again, any of Satan's accusations about God uh, completely destroyed by the cross. And so Christ now is the new ruler and king of planet Earth. 
So again, to bring in this bigger picture of the cross, in Colossians 1, through the Son then, God, God decided to bring the whole universe back to himself. So that's more than just us. Sinless angels. God made peace through his Son's blood on the cross and so brought back to himself all things, both on earth and in heaven. At one time you were far away from God and were his enemies because of the evil things you did and thought, but now by means of the physical death of his son, God has made you his friends. There it is, a third verse we've quoted to make that point. But again, God, uh, the cross, was more than just for the salvation of us sinful humans. There was a war in heaven and uh, the cross was even important for, um, I think, solidifying the angels and who knows what's out there, but solidifying angels that uh, God is just like Jesus and uh, there's, there's no reason to be afraid of God. So uh, the last point here I'll make, and then this one will be very brief, is I think the, the cross reveals terrible things about humanity in its fallen state. Remember, God came to his own people, his people who knew the Bible very well. He came to them. He didn't come to China or somewhere else. He came to the people who should have known the most about God. And what did his people say? We have no king but Caesar. I mean, to choose a, a, a pagan ruler, we prefer Caesar to you, Jesus. I mean, that's shocking. And then, of course, which one do you want me to set free? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus called the Messiah? And just to think that a religious people so devout would choose Barabbas over Jesus. I mean, it just reveals uh, the horrible nature of sin and how far away we were from God. And most shocking of all, um, it, it's unthinkable. But as Jesus is dying, in fact, he's already dead. They don't know it. But the Jews, since it was the day of Sabbath preparation, and so the bodies wouldn't stay on the crosses over the Sabbath, it was a high holy day that year, petitioned Pilate that their legs be broken to speed death and the bodies taken down. So again, in their devotion to keep the list, they wanted to break the legs of Jesus so he'd die faster so that they could get home to keep the Sabbath. I think the cross is the strongest case we can make against legalism as a means of salvation. Uh, it is not about keeping the right list of rules. I think the list of rules are important, but um, devoid of a true knowledge of God, devoid of an intimate relationship with God, keeping the rules we see in the Pharisees, keeping the rules absent that actually makes us God's enemies. So it reveals us in all of our uh, malignant cancerous state and says, hey, it's not about the list. It's about coming to God in intimacy relationship. So I think as we see all of these things, my goodness, all of these issues about God, about sin, about Satan, about our fallen human nature, as all of this comes into focus at the cross, we are prepared to be restored to trust with God once again, based on the revelation of all of this. And uh, almost uh, the, the cross is it's like, um, you know, God getting down and proposing almost. It is, please, it is a very much um, a call for us to accept something, just like you would do in a, in a marriage. So as a couple verses on this in Ephesians 3. Yes, may you come to know his love. How do we know his love? Ultimately through Jesus although it can never be fully known. I mean, this is the purpose of this Bible study. We're trying to understand and contemplate his love. And what happens in that process? And so be completely filled with the very nature of God, the very character of God. And uh, this is not a, 
uh, you know, uh, to say about perfectionism or anything like that. But it is a natural, unavoidable consequence that as we come to know God as he is, and as we come to see him as he is, we can't help it. There is a change that happens. Last verse, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. We said glory is character. We're contemplating. We're trying to understand. Are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So uh, the atonement, I would say, from a certain perspective, God has been at the work of atonement since sin entered the human race. He's been trying to at one all along. And in fact, would you say atonement was completed at the cross? Were the disciples at one with Jesus when he died? Uh, no, they're scared to death in the upper room. Um, this is the function of the Holy Spirit, which is to apply that truth that we understand. So the atonement is a work that goes forward as we look back at the cross and understand who our God is. Let's pray. Father, it wouldn't be possible to uh, thank you enough for the things that you have done to try to restore us, to reconcile us, to make us your friends again. Help us help our understanding of the cross to be such that um, we come to you, that we seek to um, strengthen that relationship, that trust. And again, we ask that we would be uh, restored into your image, not for selfish reasons, but uh, that others would also see how good you are. In your name we pray. Amen.